Hi, everyone, and welcome to Her Story. This is episode 18, and my guest today is Zoe Cutler. Zoe is a composer, arranger, and trombonist, and in this episode, Zoe and I talk about her career and her experiences in school, but we also talk about gender identity and what collegiate institutions can do to further diversify their content and creating more inclusive environment to promote the modern musician and the eclectic experience of music. So we have a really awesome conversation about what collegiate institutions can do in order to further their program and really put us into the 21st century modern era of music. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. She has some wonderful ideas and some really great insight into all of these topics that are discussed. So I hope you enjoy. Please make sure you're sharing this episode with your friends and you're liking and following all of our social media content. I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Hi, my name is Zoe Cutler. I'm a multimedia artist. I use she, her. I play trombone, I compose, I do some mixing and some like video projects. I've arranged a lot of music, play tuba, but only in a klezmer band. Yeah, so I, I just get different styles that I play, contemporary, classical music, jazz, klezmer. So what got you started in music in the first place? What interest when you were little? Yeah, my dad had a lot of jazz records not very many jazz records that included trombonists actually but it was a pretty musical household my first instrument was the drum set when i was in third grade and then in fifth grade of course we had to choose some sort of band or orchestra instrument i really wanted to play the trumpet because like louis armstrong played the trumpet i was like this would be so cool and through some tricky techniques to avoid having a class that was all trumpet players they convinced me that I should play the trombone instead. Yeah, I guess I never really like thought, oh, maybe I'll try to switch to the trumpet later or whatever, but I just kind of kind of stuck with that. You know, still trying to figure it out however many years later. Mm-hmm. I haven't counted recently, but. So you play trombone, so you obviously started in, you know, the stereotypical public school program. How were those experiences like for you in middle school and high school growing up, being who you yeah. are and playing trombone? I guess I should mention that I'm a trans woman. Didn't know that about myself until I was about a freshman in high school. So I wouldn't say that there was a lot that was in here. I'm in public school. In high school, it became a little bit more stressful, but I guess at that time, it wasn't any more stressful to be coming out as trans in my music classes as compared to like all my other academic classes. The main difference is that in the music classes, of course, I probably had the same teacher for multiple years. And so I was bridging conversations with with my teachers and trying to like, you know, educate them in some way about myself and hope that they would respect my identity in the classroom and use my name and pronouns and there were some complications with like the band and the orchestra went on trips every so often, like rooming arrangements. And so I was kind of like mm. putting myself out there and trying to involve myself in these conversations with my teachers and with the principal and with the school board about all these things. And 
Yeah, I would say it was a little bit, it was definitely stressful at that time, but I don't know that music specifically made it stressful. Being who you are and, and how you identify yourself, did you feel like you were ostracized at all in your musical ensembles, or did you feel like you were in a pretty accepting environment as far as your music yeah, so I grew up in Ann Arbor, and but it was an interesting environment because it's very liberal. But at the time, I think people were not very informed on queer issues. And so there was this attitude that I got where people would kind of be like, yeah, that's cool. You can dress how you want. You can do what you want, but not necessarily respecting my identity. Mm-hmm. Just kind of accepting that I could be sort of alternative do this activity or that activity and that was like cool and so I I think that sometimes liberal places sort of fall into that category where they're used to a variety of gender expression even if they're not used to like talking about gender identity and so they can come across as accepting even though they're not actually listening to what I'm saying and so that was always really hard because because I could talk to my friends and I could come out as trans and they would be like, yeah, that's great. That's so cool. And then they would continue to screw up my pronouns and screw up my name repeatedly. And I just think that like, even, you know, I think that there were just so many more queer people in public schools who were out. I just think the culture has changed so much with Gen Z. And now I think that there's not necessarily that everybody's having accepting experiences, but the exposure to queer people and the exposure to trans people is just much higher than it was when... I was in high school. Yeah. And I think that having just like even a few queer people that I knew <laughs> probably would have helped in terms of solidarity, would have helped in terms of the teachers knowing what was going on. But at the time, I really did not know hardly any queer people. And the ones that I did know were kind of on the periphery. They weren't in my social circle. I'm just thinking as a teacher, because I'm band director, I teach middle school and high school band. And just, I always think about my students and how they identify and trying to make as an inclusive environment as possible. And so there are a lot of teachers that listen to this podcast. And so my question for you is, do you have any advice for teachers as to how they can make that environment more inclusive and accepting to queer and trans students? I think that asking for pronouns is a really basic thing that can be done. People's pronouns do change sometimes, but you know, at least at the beginning of the year, if the students have to fill out some sort of form, let them put it on it, especially to think about finding ways to communicate with the students that are apart from their parents, because parents can be a source in high school, especially in middle school, of students not feeling comfortable talking about their identity because they're worried that it'll get back to their parents. And so, I think checking in with the students is really important in a way that like maybe they write some, you know, introduce themselves on a forum, write some fun facts about themselves and also pronouns are asked for and maybe even a question that says, is this information that your parents know so that they Mm -hmm. can be, teachers can kind of navigate that conversation without accidentally outing students and putting themselves in a weird position because I do think some parents are really horrible to trans kids and can feel like if a teacher is respecting this trans child's wishes that they feel like that's an attack on their child or that's an attack on their values right so there there has there's this sort of careful dance that happens where you can try to communicate with your students honestly and make it an open space without necessarily having that information leave the classroom in some way oh yeah um, yeah i completely agree i think another thing is just like not like making sure that you don't question students about 
their experience too much. Seems obvious. I just wanted to throw that out there. I know that, like, again, at the time that I was trying to come out, the knowledge was much different, but I definitely had to, like, thoroughly explain myself to to all of my teachers, especially the ones I knew closely. And that made it hard for me to even out myself to some teachers just because of, like, maybe the classroom environment or the, the other students or, you know, so it, it was just hard for me to come out because I wasn't sure how they'd react. I wasn't sure how much I'd have to, like, talk to them how much they'd have to like try to say supportive things and you know Mm -hmm. I think it can be like a really casual conversation in which students are just like here's my pronouns and you're like great and then you just like start associating that student with the pronouns and you just that's like that's the whole thing you know but I, I do think you make a good point about the pronouns and everything because I think in education we need to make asking students pronouns as normal as asking their name and making sure we're able to pronounce their name I think asking their pronouns yeah. and knowing their pronouns is just as important totally. to be just as valued. And a lot of times I feel like that's kind of pushed to the wayside. A lot of teachers don't ask their students their pronouns. And so like I try to do that right at the beginning of the year and I ask every kid their pronouns and I do have them fill it out on a form anonymously. So they don't feel like they're being outed if they're not out yet or anything, but at least I know how to address them and I try to make it normalcy. So yeah. even if the person's binary and they go by, you know, their biological he or biological she, they feel like everybody's answering the same thing. Everybody has to answer the same question. So that's just kind of what I do. That's kind of like my strategy. Yes. But I do think that's that's very important. You mentioned you would get into the college thing later. So let's get in the college thing now. <laughs> yeah. What were your experiences like at the collegiate level? Yeah, I would say that I had a I had a good experience coming in. I went to Oberlin Conservatory, which is like the hippie mecca of, you know, music schools, right? So every queer musician went there, right? That was interesting because every queer person went to Oberlin College, and Oberlin College had a really, really high proportion, something like 40% of the student population was queer. And the conservatory was definitely not at that level, but compared to other music schools it was definitely a really queer place yeah that's and so cool. often that translated into more knowledge from the professors but not always because the number of trans people in the conservatory was not that many compared to the number of trans people in the college and also compared to the number of just queer people in general in the conservatory and there, there are some professors who are pretty young and hip and knew what they were talking about and there's some professors who were kind of old and didn't exactly know what they were talking about so I me and my friends had really mixed experiences with mm-hmm. different professors that we worked with and how much they respected it I would say the one thing that was most uncomfortable was I, I do think musicians sometimes lack a filter and I did get asked sometimes too many personal questions about my identity and transition and all that sort of stuff by professors And I just think that, like, the whole music school hierarchy that creates that issue needs to be dismantled because we put so much power in professors and we've seen with the Me Too movement how badly music professors have acted um, and gotten away with things and not been held responsible for them, right? And I just think that, like, I was put in this position that wasn't that severe, but where I felt like I had to kind of answer some questions that I didn't necessarily want to answer because here's this person who's teaching me and grading me and maybe providing me with some 
career furthering, you know, like networking or something. Yeah. I, I just think the way we've like set up the whole like music school thing is problematic. And that leads me into my queer colleagues. I felt like the queer people that I knew in the conservatory, especially ones who are not cis gay men, did poorly in that environment. I think that a lot of my friends ended up deciding to pursue something else besides music. And I think that that like comes from a lot of things. It's like music schools are set up in a way where we prioritize in like the classical severe, especially we prioritize the orchestra and the orchestra yeah. is like the greatest thing to ever happen. And everybody wants to like, you know, win, a, win an orchestral job. And that was really true at Oberlin, even though it was this like contemporary music, hippie school, it was also like a lot of people were like, I want my orchestra job and I'm gonna go get a master's and whatever, all this stuff. And I think that a lot of those goals are difficult for queer people to grapple with. And just like the more layers of oppression that you have going into a space like that, the least likely you're going to be able to make it out and graduate when like you're beaten down so much by professors expecting you to like practice for so many hours and professors expecting you to practice things that relate to an orchestral career when you clearly don't want an orchestral career, you know, mm -hmm. or just, yeah, like the amount of classes you have to take. I just think it's set up in this in this way that makes it really hard for anyone but really privileged people to exist in the space and I yeah. just wish that it not that I feel like everybody should have a career in music you know like right now doesn't look so great for careers in music but <laughs> yeah. but I, I wish that the infrastructure was set up in a way that more of my career colleagues had been able to complete the program and feel satisfied with their music making and not feel so like bogged down by like performance anxiety and feeling like they didn't have a place in the field because of this whole orchestral mindset because of the whole like way that we put professors on a pedestal mm -hmm. and just this kind of like factory approach where everybody has to come out sounding in a particular way and especially for brass players there's a big emphasis on like orchestral sound really big big equipment you know and there's always going to yeah. be like some number of like macho white dudes in the studio who are like, I play this, you know, tank of a trombone and I sound so big. And, you know, it makes it hard to like, like literally take up space, you know, take up like sonic space. If you're like, I kind of want to like not play that loud. And I kind of want to do something that's not blasting out the viola player's ears in front of me. Yeah, I do think that a lot of music schools just push the orchestra with everything. And a lot of people that get music degrees don't end up being involved in the symphony orchestra. So I agree with you in that. I think music schools yeah. need to become more individualized in their instruction and need to support those students that may not want to pursue the stereotypical standard white Western classical music. Yes. And really interesting about the things that you're pursuing is that you not only are a trombonist, but you're also an arranger and a composer, and you work with music that's not just classical music. You do stuff with world music and stuff with jazz. Can you elaborate a little bit on um, some of the stuff you do yeah. professionally? Yeah. COVID-19 has, you know, made, made the music world really weird. And something that I'm really grateful for is that I've been developing this kind of wide variety of skills because, like, everything is online now, right? So I've been making some video projects in which I have like composed some music 
and then I go in and I record all the parts and then I like mix it to make it really kind of fake almost, you know, but, but it's not really fake. It's just, you move the notes around, you tune it a little bit and you make a, a nice studio sort of recording and then making some sort of like silly meme videos on top of it, which is really fun. And I, I'm, I'm just glad that I have the outlet. I wish I had more motivation for that still as the pandemic drags on and <laughs> the hope of gigs in the future gets less and less, but <laughs> I would say that like in music schools, in terms of like revamping music schools, I do think that the administration should be looking much more at what jazz departments are doing because in the entire classical departments of schools that I've been in, every professor is like an orchestral head and they basically, all they do is they teach people how to play the instrument and then they kind of check out and it's really hard to find a role model if you're like I would like to move to a city and like get some gigs and just play some shows it's really hard to find a role model like that in classical professors just because they they get hired based on the fact that we put orchestral music on a pedestal and so then once they get that job then we hire them for the university job and Mm -hmm. in the jazz department it's like there are professors who are actually just gigging musicians because in the jazz community there's not this emphasis on some big thing like the orchestra there's not like an equivalent where you're like if you do that you've made it most professional jazz musicians are freelancers right like 99 percent and even if they work for an organization for an amount of time like you know maybe maybe the lincoln center orchestra maybe they like do a cruise maybe they tour with this band but you know, then after a few years, they're probably just going to go back to what they were doing and like piecing together a bunch of things. And so like those people are so much more relatable to me. And I just think that a lot of people who are getting a classical degree don't even get to like talk with those people. They like don't know they exist, you know? Yeah, I feel like a lot of what musical institutions do is they kind of put everybody in a bubble. So you're either this or you're that. You're either a classical musician or you're a jazz musician. You're either this or you're something else. So and, and that's not really how the modern music world is. A lot of people have to be eclectic musicians. They need to be able to compose. They need to be able to arrange. They need to be able to improvise. They need to be able to do all these things and all these skills that I don't think that the average quote-unquote classically trained institution is focusing on. Yeah, totally. Another thing about jazz departments, right, is that jazz professors often teach a variety of classes. So they're already coming in with like, way more marketable skills than the average classical professor and that's not to like shit on classical professors right because they're really good at their their really specific thing and they and they might have some other skills sometimes but their job is primarily to like you know teach 20 trombonists how to play the trombone and then you know maybe they conduct the trombone choir and then they have and they're like okay that's it you know whereas the average full-time jazz professor is conducting an ensemble whether that's a big band or a combo or maybe multiple combos and they're probably teaching something like a theory class or maybe an arranging class or like a history class and they're teaching students on their instrument and they're probably also teaching students on other instruments who want to like learn more about jazz language and i just think that that's such a like undervalued thing in classical music we like like in the trombone studio class 
so many times somebody's been like, play it like a singer, play it like a cellist. But have we ever brought in a singer or a cellist to do the music for us in the studio class? No, we're like stuck in our own little like trombone world. <laughs> there's no like, I don't know, there's no, there's no integration, you know? And so it just, it's very isolating and it's, it's, it's hard to be motivated about, about music when we only like sort of talk about like the other music that's out there without actually like truly engaging with it. And yeah, I, I think the problem is that jazz departments are completely ostracized by Western classical music administrations, right? So administrations don't even like think about the fact that the jazz department maybe needs some resources or that they like mm -hmm. have their own needs because the, probably the jazz department is so small compared to the entire music school, right? But yep. I, I did a double major at Oberlin and I attempted to do a double major in classical trombone and jazz trombone. I eventually had to add an individual major and drops double major that it was actually impossible. And I was like more overloaded than you were supposed to be for a double major. And I think that's just like the administration never sat down and thought, oh man, maybe somebody might do a double major in classical and jazz. They were like, you might do a double major in violin and viola and then orchestra, it all overlaps. And so then you don't have to take like nearly as many credits. And it's just like, it's just like the foresight there, you know, it's like jazz departments need more funding. And also every classical student needs to experience improvisation, right? Because like, yep. okay, we live in America and all American music is black music. Black musicians have furthered every single American evolution of music, right? And a big component of that comes from Jervis to like the history of this country to have music schools in America churning out, you know, quote, classical musicians who have no experience with improvisation, who have no experience with black music. And yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I think that, that like so many gigs, right, are in versions of popular music and pretty much all popular musics are black music. So like that, that needs to be happening. Like students need to be improvising. The jazz professors need to be like interacting with every classical student. Otherwise the education experience is just not very well rounded. And then they get dropped off into the world and they're like, I don't even know how to do this. I don't know how to swing. I don't know how to improvise. I don't know how to groove, play with rhythm section. Like these are really, really basic skills for m many types of music, like pretty much yeah. every type of music that's not orchestral music, right? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And it's kind of weird because every music school that I've either been to or been a part of has fallen into that realm where the jazz department's kind of just there and it's just kind of ostracized and you never see the jazz students and things like that. And yeah. it's kind of weird because I go to Eastman right now for my master's and every once in a while the jazz yeah trumpet players come over and join one of our studio classes and they come play what they're working on with us. Yeah. I guess that's like kind of a way to like bridge the gap a little bit and say, hi, we're here. And we're able to have conversations with them about jazz music and talk to them and that sort of thing. But right. there is this hole missing. Like I haven't, I played in uh, jazz ensembles a little bit in my undergrad, but I haven't improvised yeah. since my freshman year of my undergrad. And that's a problem. <laughs> You know, because yeah. I don't really have to improvise for the majority of my job. But if I were a gigging musician, like that's a skill you need to have. And not everybody ends up getting a job in an orchestra. Yes. A lot of people don't. And so they end up in these situations where they don't have yes. the skills to keep up with everybody else.
Yeah. Another skill that, you know, you've been working on is the composing and arranging piece. So were you ever involved in a composition program at the collegiate level, or is that just something you just started pursuing after college? I started arranging when I was in maybe late middle school because I was so annoyed about the fact that the trombone can only play one note at the time, one note at a time. <laughs> I also do a lot of multiphonic for this reason, but it was, it was really, it was really aggravating to me. I just wanted to play music. I'm always so jealous of pianists, especially jazz pianists. You can point at a jazz pianist, you can be like, hey, can you put an intro on this? And they're just like, music, you know, and they just like come up with this whole like perfectly beautiful thing out of their mind and their fingers. And I'm just like, wow, that's, you know, if like somebody asked me to play an intro, it's like, here's a couple notes and they're really separate. So I, I, was, I was really jealous of that, right? And so then I started arranging because I was like, this is the way that I can play things that are more than one person is by taking the music I want to play, which at the time was probably like video game music or something, right? This was like middle school. So, and it just kind of, it just kind of, you know, like the ball kept rolling from there and it took me a while. It took me until like maybe junior year of college until I was like, maybe I should write an actual composition. And I wrote maybe one that year. And I think I put it on my recital and I really thank my professors for like letting me have an interesting recital that had a lot of sort of different types of music on it instead of, I do think a lot of people's professors put them into a box and say, you have to play your Bach and you have to play this. And then that's kind of, you know, now you're out of time. Yeah. Um, so I had this composition on my recital. It was like for jazz rhythm section, trombone, voice, and like string quartet. And then senior year, I took Elizabeth Ogonek's composition class. It was actually the freshman composition class. It was an amazing class. I really, really admire Elizabeth's work, and she's really cool. It was really interesting, though, because it was the freshman class. I was a senior. They were, like, really excited freshmen trying to prove how weird and Oberlin they were with their weird compositions, and I was, you know, <laughs> kind of a chill senior, like, you know, doing my own thing, writing this sort of crossover music, and, you know, everything kind of had a groove, and they were, like, doing some extended technique, play the violin upside down stuff, right? Yeah, um, of course. It was really interesting. The first composition everybody wrote was like kind of in their own style. And then the second composition everybody wrote was like, let me make it weird now because somebody in the class writes really weird music. So I have to, I have to live up to that, you know? Yeah. That was a really, that was a really foundational experience for me. Uh, but, but I think it's just something that like comes naturally from improvisation, right? Like you improvise for long enough and you're just like, oh, I could write some of this down. Mm -hmm. I could, you know, put some of this into, into like a more concrete form. I, I enjoy it because there's this cool balance of like me being able to express my artistic voice through the composition, but also leave enough things up to the performer that they can like add their own voice, which again is something that I think, I, I think that if people were playing more jazz, there would be, composition would be so much more accessible. Pretty much any recorded jazz artist has written a tune. And the reason yeah. for that is that writing a tune is like writing a melody and some chord changes and then you give it to these amazing musicians who know the music and they make it beautiful and you didn't have to like be an expert you didn't have to like go in and like write something really complicated you could just like trust your musicians to play something beautiful on top of your work right and yeah. i think that classical music has a big problem with that right in which 
composers, there, there's this really big like patriarchal idea where like the composer is right and, and the composer transfers that information to the conductor and then the conductor transfers that information to like the section leader, the principals and then the section players and whatever. There's this whole, there's this whole patriarchal thing and like the composer's intention is a big thing, right? And yeah. I'm not that type of composer. I want, I'm always like, if somebody asks me a question, I'm like, what do you want to do? Like, put your own thing on it. Like, tell me what's convincing in this composition. Take out half of the piece if you want. <laughs> Because I just I just don't subscribe to the idea that like the composer knows everything and it's only their yeah, artistic expression and we have to mathematically put their their composition together and it has to be perfect and I think that there's unfortunately too much music that's kind of being written with that in mind where composers are just like asking for performers to do sometimes silly things and it ends up like not totally coming across because the performers don't really know what they're being asked to do. Yeah. And then audiences then therefore are not that convinced by it because if the performers aren't that convinced by it, and I'm not getting in trouble for saying all of this, of course, but um, <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I do think it's important that like performers have their voice on the music. But I also think that, of course, like with all the things we've been talking about, it's hard for performers in the classical sphere to put their voice on music when they don't have these trainings to make oh, yeah. them a more well-rounded musician, right? Because because if they don't, if they've never improvised, if they never like, I mean, even just improvised in their practice, right? Like I'm not talking about over chord changes, I'm talking about just like play what they feel, you know? Mm -hmm. um, instead of play playing etudes. If they've never done something like that, then you try to give them some freedom and they're just like, I, I don't know, what do you want? Like I, I just play the notes on the page, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's, it's, it's a battle, you know? It's like, it's like, I think a lot needs to be done to strengthen the way that we teach music so that performers come out of it having autonomy and being able to be like, <laughs> for example, if I'm working with a composer and the composer writes something that is just like bonkers for the trombone, right? I need to have the autonomy both to be like, I can't do that or to just do something absolutely completely different that sounds cool and yeah. go for it and make it convincing, right? Because you know, music, music, I think music is about being expressive. Music is about like trying to relate to the audience and trying to perform, right? Perform. So if, if you don't have the autonomy to go there and just kind of be like, okay, I'm going to try to, I'm, I'm going to put my own spin on what this composer wrote. I'm going to put my own spin on this music and I'm going to just try to like go for it and make this convincing then, then the music's going to, you know, if you don't do that, the music's going to have less value. Yeah, and the, the music doesn't have life then, and then there's no such thing as yeah. artistic interpretation. I mean, I don't go to watch Beethoven 2 50 times played the exact same way, and I think that's what yes. the whole classical realm tries to push, is that everything needs to be played the exact same way every single time. Well, that's yes. boring. It's the same thing over and over and over again. There's no room for artistic choice and there should be like frankly like you could play brahms two differently than the next orchestra you don't have to play it the same exact way as you've been hearing it for hundreds of years that's that's not yeah. a thing that has to happen there's no rule out there that says this needs to be done there's no musical law yeah <laughs> you know yeah yeah i think that it's something that like again most other styles of music understand right like covers are a big thing like you take Recently, I heard a cover of Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd, and it was kind of like, had this, like, had these, like, disco syncopated vocals, 
And I was like, wow, this is incredible, right? But if you took like an orchestra and they played Brahms too, but they did it like that, people would be like up in arms about it, you know? They, they would be so yeah. freaked out that they like had some artistic liberty and made an interesting choice. And I just think that's unfortunate that we've trained ourselves to be like, we have to do it perfectly. And that leads into the whole excerpts conversation, right? Because, because the whole orchestral mindset thing hinges on us convincing ourselves that playing orchestral excerpts is a worthwhile activity that improves our musicianship. And I just, I don't think that's true. I think that it is a factory approach. And if we train students that all we need to do is just play these excerpts over and over again and just, you know, practice them for so many hours and then eventually we'll get an orchestral job and an orchestral job is of course what you want, then that's like, we're contributing the most to music. It's just, it's just really unfortunate because, yeah. because it, it becomes really bland. It becomes really lifeless. It would, it would be seen as incorrect if you had a new take on an excerpt and you went into audition and played it in an interesting way. One thing I was going to bring up though, because you brought up a good point about the whole excerpt thing. So my, my teacher, my undergrad, Jack Setti is, is the second trumpet of the Cleveland Orchestra. So obviously he's this orchestral player. That's his goal. That's his focus. And so there were students that were working on excerpts at points, but he always stressed the idea of developing the musical skills on your instrument and not working on excerpts. Unless, you know, you were a kid that wanted to be an orchestral musician, you were preparing for some sort of audition or summer music festival or whatever, and then you would practice those. But during like the day-to-day trumpet playing, it wasn't about the excerpt. And I appreciated that so much because I was never a person that was going to pursue a career where I had to play excerpts for an audition every two seconds. Like that wasn't my goal. So he focused on musical development over anything else. And I do agree with you that there's this this hierarchy system in place in classical music where classical music is seen as the best form of music or the most elite or the most enlightened. And that's not the case. And there are many parts of the world where that's not the case. I think the fact that he pushed just developing yourself as a musician and as a trumpet player and working on the skills necessary to develop that technique was far more important than a teacher that would just shove orchestral excerpts down a kid's throat. I think I would have yeah. been a lot more frustrated as a student if that's what I was doing all the time when I knew that that wasn't the career path that I wanted to take. Totally, totally. Yeah, I would say that I'm an incredibly subversive person and I think the only way that I was able to get through my bachelor's and master's degrees were what was by not listening to all the orchestral like you know, shtick that was thrown at me. And I think that, I think the problem is that I, I came in very convinced that I was going to play different styles of music that I was going to like arrange. And then eventually I was, that I was going to compose and I was going to be a, a multifaceted artist, right? But I know some people who are coming in who are kind of like, I'm not really sure what I want to do. And then their teachers just kind of like, let's play these excerpts. And then once yeah. that happens, it's like, then the student is kind of indoctrinated into that and they don't really know how to speak up and be like hey I actually wanted to do something else and then eventually they're just kind of like wow I guess this is what music is this isn't really what I thought and then they're like this is kind of boring and then they like exit right because it's just too it's just too boring for them and I think that they just need to be exposed to all the different types of music 
earlier on. And I think that even studio teachers are responsible for that exposure. Yep. And I know that a lot of studio teachers make the argument that they're like, this is what I know. I know orchestral music, so this is what I'm going to teach. If you want to do other stuff, go do other stuff. But I think it has to be more proactive than that. I think that they have to be coming up with things that are outside of their comfort zone to bring in so the students just can experience other music because I, I guess with my experience with students, it doesn't really work to just be like, yeah, the music's out there. You can go Google it and you can listen. You know, you kind of have to like bring it in and talk about it and make it valid by putting it in the classroom. Because if you remove music from the classroom that's not Western classical music, then it does create that hierarchy that you were talking about where yeah. Western classical music is like, this is what we're teaching. And then anything else is kind of like, oh, yeah, you can go do that in your free time. The equity piece is there in that because we build up these barriers and these gates to minoritized populations when it comes to classical music. And we need to be able to bridge those gaps. And so if we're just doing that, even at the collegiate level and just making kids play these certain same excerpts over and over again and pushing the symphony orchestra on them. And then we're still doing that in K-12 education where we're only programming music by straight, white, cisgender, male composers. Then yeah. we're just promoting that idea over and over and over again. And then how can we make music equitable for every population when we're not even doing that from the start? So I was just going to agree with you on your point there that it, it's a, it ends up being an inequity piece. Definitely, definitely. And I think that professors, conductors, administration all have the power to diversify the performances, right? And, and I think I knew, I knew a lot of students in undergrad who were like trying to make the recital all works by women or all works by black composers or some generally, you know, like trying to normalize having compositions that are not by straight cis white men, right? And I think that that's hard because like the students don't actually have that much power in terms of programming besides their own recital. And some people's yeah. professors are even sort of controlling what they have to play on the recital and makes them hard for them to even fulfill a goal like play all music by women because the professor wants them to play this specific set of, of composers, right? Yeah. And so I think that it's really on the, the faculty to take up that initiative. Yeah. Um, because yeah, the majority of things that are going to be performed are spearheaded by the faculty and brought by the faculty. There are so many small ensembles where the faculty are suggesting works or telling you what to play. Um, there are studio recitals and just like the works that we're, you're studying, even like etudes. You know, there's just there's just an incredible amount of music out there, and it's just not fair that professors pretend like we can't play any solo trombone literature by black composers, you know, like it's, it's out there. It's not any less valid than whatever standard trombone piece that they want to teach because they've taught it a lot of times. To be honest, a lot of those standard trombone pieces are kind of mediocre and I really wish that we would replace them with something else. <laughs> and instead we do them over and over and over again because yeah. you like quote have to know them. And I just like, I don't think in my career, I'm not a soloist. I don't think that I will ever play those pieces for trombone and piano that are so boring because what I, I nobody's telling me to do that you yeah. know but professors think that that's like that's what we need to be prepared to do is is like be a soloist and play these standard pieces that are by dead white men and I I don't know I, I don't understand how they came to that conclusion and yeah, yeah. 
Oh yeah, and it's not just it's not even just the solo rep. If we're looking at large ensemble rep that's played at the collegiate Absolutely. level, I have only I'm trying to think. I have only played I think one piece by a female composer the entire time I was in my undergrad, unless it was like a a new composition concert and we were playing pieces by the student composers, and then I would yeah. have some diverse composers that I was playing pieces by. But if we're just talking about standard concerts, I think I've had yeah. one piece that I played by a female composer. I may have had one piece by a composer of color, but right. nothing more than that. And that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. And people try to act like, oh well, I need to, I need to choose this certain repertoire because I need to, blah 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 blah. These skills need to be taught, and I'm like, you could teach the same skills playing a completely different piece. And people try to act like it's so hard to find works by minoritized composers, but it's no. literally the easiest thing ever. They're being written. Go on yeah. Google. <laughs> like you got to get a big old book out now and look it up. Like. Right. It's so easy. It's just, it's, there are huge yeah. databases now. Yes, composerdiversity.com. Yeah. That's like a huge database. You can look up composers of color. You could look up LGBTQ composers. You can look up specific cities if you want to bring in a composer from whatever city you're in. Like, yeah. there's so many resources out there now. So, there's literally no excuse. People keep trying yeah. to make excuses. There is no excuse. And I think that really needs to start, education needs to start that. And if they are spurring that movement, I feel like professional ensembles will have to follow. Yeah, for sure. So it's, it's a cycle. It's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, do we blame K-12 yeah. education? Do we blame professional ensembles? What do we do? It's like... I, I can think of like a lot of, a lot of changes that could be made to further this work, right? I, I, I mean, I mentioned the dismantling of the way that we think of like the conservatory or the music school. I think that like professor hiring needs to change um, yeah. and we need to stop hiring professors just like who are trombone robots who just teach the trombone and that's all they do. Because again, I would relate so much more to professors if they were freelance musicians. Like the, these are the people who are right now still creating really interesting music despite it being a pandemic because they have these other skills that they can bring together. They know how to work with technology, you know? Yeah, so that's that's a big one. And understanding, like I, I think we need professors, teachers need to understand intersectionality and mm. like how their students are oppressed and the disadvantages they have coming in because the more types of oppression that you pile on, the harder it's going to be to get out of a music program in one piece and still want to do that. Yeah. And I find that so many music school cultures are really alienating and their whole goal is like, basically, we're going to work you so hard that by the end you're going to be able to do anything, but that sort of ignores the types of the, the other types of things that that people have going on behind the scenes, uh, yeah. mental health problems or having to work two jobs on, a, on top of being in school. And of course, any of those things are going to be higher depending on the number of types of oppression that you experience, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on an institutional level to like reach out to those students in a way that's not tokenizing and accept enough students who are from a diverse set of backgrounds that they don't feel like they're the only one that they have a community to latch on to because you know the main communities that we're in like brass departments for example 
were like the bros, you know, oh, like yeah. the white bros, uh -huh. right? Yep. Super big community. So they get through because they have this like strong community. I never hung out with like the brass department group, right? It's just like that's has never been my scene. I had some friends who were brass players who were kind of in our own little like circle, but the like main group is just, you know, it's, and I, I think that's true for like anyone who's not a cis white dude, barring like a couple people who hang out, you know, who are, who are not yeah. cis white dudes who hang out with them. And that's hard, right? So it's like, if you're the only woman, if you're the only black person, especially if you're the only black woman in a space, it's going to be really hard to find community in that space. It's going to be really hard to exist without feeling like you're having to constantly stand up for yourself. And especially for women and brass players, I feel like there's this big pressure to sound as big and orchestral as like the dudes are trying to sound. There's just this like, I, I think that there's a huge, huge there's a huge stereotype that women can't play brass instruments because they're too weak. And I think that actually a lot of male brass players think this, even if they would not say it. And that's hard because then every time you get up in studio class to perform, it's like the pressure is on. You have to like stand up for all women as yep. like one of, you know, maybe two women in your studio and mm. you have to like perform perfectly. And then put on top of that, you know, like in my case, I'm not even an orchestral musician. So then I have to get up on stage <laughs> and try to make that a convincing enough performance that the men in the studio are like, you know, convinced that women can play a brass instrument, you know? And so it's just, yeah, we've, we've, we've just totally screwed it up, you know, like, yeah, like the way it's organized is just really not, really not good. Yeah, we have to we have to overcompensate and sound more masculine and play with it's it's always bigger or louder or more aggressive or in, in the language that we use to describe brass playing is not honestly it's not the most accurate language in the world because as much as we have to play loud, we have to play soft. We have to play beautiful, we have to play delicate, we have to do all yeah. these other things that yeah. no one ever emphasizes, especially in studio class when you go up to perform especially yeah That's why i'm so glad yeah. you brought that up because i always feel like when i have to go up and play that i always have to make myself bigger and larger because i'm this tiny five foot four woman who right. is playing in studios with dudes that are six foot four and weigh over 200 pounds yeah. and i have to somehow prove myself to keep up so i completely agree yeah yeah i think i think another really big problem that happens in the brass community is that because of these biases that men have and people in general have about women playing instruments, playing brass instruments. I think that women get specific comments about their playing that are actually detrimental down the road. And I think like a yeah. big one is breathing. I think that women are told to use more air, to breathe more so much, and it does not help it turns out that to play a brass instrument, you don't actually need a full tank of air for every single phrase. To yeah. play a staccato, no, you do not need to breathe in a full tank of air. But yet so many brass players think that that's how you do it. And because women are being perceived as weak and being perceived as like maybe smaller and not having as much air or something like that, right? You go up in a master class and you play and that's like the number one comment is they're like, how oh, will you try breathing more? And then like I think because card. of that, yeah, they got to play that card in the deck. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, don't get me started on master classes. <laughs> the, but, but the problem is that you have then women get that comment over and over again to the point that they are breathing so much that their playing is so tense. And I don't blame them, you know? It's like I see somebody yeah. play like that and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I know how many times you've been told to breathe more. And the amount of undoing it would take to get them to play in a more relaxed manner and like not focus so much on inhalation and all that tension that comes with it. it. It would be so much to convince them of that because of how many times they've been told that. Um, and I had to go through a huge process in my undergrad of unlearning the amount of air I was trying to use and the amount of tension I was trying to use. And I totally attribute that to master classes. And I like really, really have to tune out a lot of things that teachers say and you know, especially guest artists say, because yeah. it's just gonna be like, the number one thing that they think they can throw in there is like, oh, how have you tried breathing? And it's like, yeah, but that's, yeah, that's no not the whole shit. game. I'm able to put air through the instrument, so yes, I have. Been <laughs> right. Breathing. Thank you very much. Like, right. Oh yeah. Oh, trust me, I am. I'm completely with you on all of that. Yeah, the the language piece is so important, and yeah, the breathing is the go-to card for every frankly man who goes up there to do a master class that doesn't really know what to say. I think master classes are like a big problem just the way that they're they're run i think that i think that in the trombone community i can't really recall a master class that i enjoyed mm. because it's always an orchestral musician who basically had a really muscular body and is a white cis man and didn't really ever think about what they were doing and just kind of played their instrument for a while and got pretty good at it. And then we're supposed to be listening to them and absorbing the information they have to say about how to play the instrument. And nothing that comes out of their mouth is founded in what they did. Like they just kind of practiced and they were able to get away with having a bunch of tension in their playing because of the amount of muscle they had that they could like kind of stomach that tension and just like hold it all in and that like worked for them and so then they just perpetuate the, these ideas that you have to use so much muscle and so much tension to play and yeah. they say that to people whose body types are so different from theirs and then those people end up with problems and they try to mimic the person they try to use bigger equipment and they try to just like tense up their bodies so that they can play like this and it's just it's just not it's just not working and another another problem is that they'll get up there and then they don't really have any basis to actually talk about music and so you get up there and then they just kind of are like okay i gotta throw something out for the student and it's so so divorced from musicality in classical music there's also this focus these days which has no historical basis Classical music used to be a highly improvised music and a really sensitive music. And if you read anything about Baroque music, there is so much emphasis on like getting your sound out of the way, being really expressive, having all notes not be the same. But these days, especially in brass playing, every note must be the same. Every note must be full yeah. voice. It must have a particular sound. And I don't know who wants to listen to that. And I feel fear that we're making listeners unable to relate to this music because if you like if, if you like any pop music singer and you listen to what they're doing with their voice it's very expressive they can sing air in an airy way they can sing in a really full voiced way they can sing like in sort of a medium way you know and i mean of course there's also like screamo and sort of there's all sorts of different vocal expressions right yeah, yeah but yeah. like in classical music we don't we don't do that everything is like full voice 
this is the thing, you know, for pretty much everything, but not too full of voice. It can't be too loud. It just has to be right in this like sweet spot where there's like this particular amount of resonance. I mean, have you listened to music? Have you listened to singers? Because when a singer sings really softly, close up to the mic, wow, it's so beautiful. It's really nice, you know? Yeah. But we can't, we're not allowed to do that on brass instruments. You can't, like, you can't play subtone. You can't, like, make make a little, you know, you, you can't make little expressive gestures. Same as everybody yeah. else. And you brought up the idea of Baroque music as well. And Baroque music, uh, improvisation was the thing. A lot yeah. of the notes, a lot of the notes and pieces weren't even written down. Yes. Like, yeah, we've, we've lost that. Yes. Oh, I completely agree. They had some chords written down that you were kind of supposed to follow, but the rest of yeah. it was all in- improvisation. So, yeah, we've completely lost that. And, I mean, yes, we have, and yes, we haven't, because we've lost that in the standard view of how we view classical music with the symphony orchestra right. and chamber music and things like that. But we haven't lost it when we look at, how jazz and other ensembles operate. Totally. And, and, and totally. that's the music that your average everyday Joe Schmo that's kind of into listening to real instruments, they're listening to jazz. They're listening to these other ensembles where improvisation yeah. is such a huge thing. The average everyday person isn't going to the symphony orchestra anymore. Yeah. yeah. So we need to start placing value in being an eclectic, holistic musician and having all of these skills, not just, hey, can you play Bolero 80 times with your face not falling off? Right, right. Yeah, I think like you can think back to early classical, late Baroque things, and you can see how we had these same ideals in classical music at the time. Not that it was perfect, obviously. I'm sure that there was plenty of like discrimination, for example. Yeah. But Mozart wrote roles for singers who had really particular voice types, you know? And now we have people trying to sing those roles who you have to like find the right person to fit that voice type. And it's like, I mean, the sort of the point of Mozart writing that was like, oh, here I have this person, I'm writing for this person. And that is something that happens all the time in popular musics and jazz is that people are writing something that's tailored to the specific player, the specific vocalist, instead of just writing like I know the written range of this instrument and I know the extended techniques that are available and now I've written this piece and now it's marketable and a lot of people can play it. You know, it, it's, it's, the, it's, yeah. it's the hierarchy thing, right? Like it's the composer-performer divide. It's like composers get to tell performers what to do and what they're supposed to do with their instruments, you know? Like Bach and a lot of other people before him and after him were like composer-improviser-performers, right? Um, yeah. They were pushing the bounds of music, they were improvising, they were writing music, they were performing all the time. And it's so hard to see somebody who's doing that in Western classical music these days. Except yeah. sometimes Baroque performers, but n- not even always, you know? And that's sort of what I'm saying about the hiring and about, I mean, all of it, right? It's like, like this kind of ties everything together. It's like, yes, there are people who are doing those things, right? There are people who universities could be hiring who perform and compose and improvise and play different styles of music and students would find that so interesting Mm -hmm. and i feel like every so often a music school is like brings in somebody who's like that and the students are like wow like oberlin brought in every year the punch brothers right and like chris Mm -hmm. Thiele is absolutely composer improviser performer right 
people were obsessed with Chris Thiele. Imagine if like Chris Thiele was the professor instead of like the guest artist, you know? Yeah. And in, like instead of our professors being, oh, well, all I do is orchestral music, it's like somebody who like plays so many types of music and is really engaged in music and is constantly like forward thinking. Yeah, we need, we need more faculty that will help support every student, not just a small percentage of the students. Yeah. And not even just with faculty, but we just need to promote more new music and we need to have performers seek out current composers that are composing and commission works and yeah. really support. You're a part of the arts. You should be supporting the arts while you're a part of the arts. You're, yeah. You shouldn't just be playing the same stereotypical pieces over and over again reach out to people reach out to your composition department at your school definitely definitely you know? so many schools don't do that oberlin was great at that oberlin played so many pieces in the orchestra in the contemporary ensembles of which there were multiple in chamber ensembles like even in the trombone choir they, they played so many of these pieces by faculty composers and student composers and yeah. university of michigan where i did my masters super rarely did that our contemporary ensemble despite being called a contemporary ensemble, played a lot of 20th century music. I think I brought up playing something by students or faculty, and they were kind of like, well, we have a lot of students and faculty, so if we started doing that, we would never get through them all or something. And I was just like, oh, what doesn't... <laughs> why? I don't know. I don't get it. Like, why are we calling it a contemporary ensemble and playing some 20th century music, like old 20th century music, instead of like playing what people at the school who we know are directly writing, who could come in, who could talk to us, we could have a conversation about the music. Yeah, so many schools are not doing that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that just needs to be more of a part of the community and a part of the repertoire on concerts because there are a lot of music schools that do like a, a new music concert. Yes. And it's just that one thing that happens once a year and it's like the one thing that the student composers write for, but that needs to be a part of every concert because I'm not saying that schools shouldn't play Brahms or Hindemith or whatever, but you can incorporate a piece like that with some new music, mix it up, mix it yeah. in, put some more composers of color in your concerts, put more yeah. female composers in your concerts. But yeah, that's like a minimum. Do. Exactly, you don't need to have one concert, one token concert for you to do all those things. Mix it in there throughout the year because that's going to show those communities so much more respect than if you're just yeah. giving them that little slice of the pie like, oh, here you go. We did the thing once yeah. a year. Here you go. Like, that's not cool. That's not okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think somebody who's doing that really well is Robert Spano with the Atlanta Symphony. Yeah. Um, I, I heard him talk at, and actually that composition class that I took senior year at Oberlin. And he talked about how I, I, identifying certain composers that he liked who were, who were writing music now and performing more than one of their piece and performing the same piece of theirs multiple times. And that I think is like, needs to be happening. Again, a bare minimum with like all orchestras and with any ensembles at universities is making audiences have a relationship with composers who are not currently part of what we consider the canon, right? Uh, because yeah, like if you play Beethoven 5, people are going to be really excited to come hear Beethoven 5 because they know it. 
but the only reason they don't know the other pieces is because we haven't played the other pieces enough for them to know it. You know, they could yeah. be equally as excited yeah. to hear whatever it is, the new piece of that new composer that you've programmed three times so that people come and hear it again because they're excited to hear it because they've heard about it because they know that person. Or that person then writes a new piece and they're like, oh, I loved the last piece they wrote. Let me come to this concert, right? But if you, but like yeah. a big pet peeve of mine is like orchestras will have one concert a year where they'll throw on that contemporary piece and it mm-hmm. is always just one that like is not a super relatable piece for some reason and it like like I feel like they play a, they'll play a piece that just feels like a sort of collection of sounds and it's very like you know 1940s and then they're like look we played our contemporary music and then afterward the audience is like yeah that was that was interesting and then they like never revisited. They never. They don't play any more music after that. And yeah, uh, and it yeah. turns people off to new music. It totally. makes everybody think, oh, new music is just a bunch of noise now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think I think the way we bridge that gap is to, you know, coax them in with a little bit more relatable music. Yeah, totally. And, and then it's like it's like getting a timid little dog to come to you with a little treat. Like you gotta like coax them in. And then you can show them the stuff that may not be as relatable, but you have to get the audience in the door first. You have to get yeah. them excited about new music. And I, I completely agree with you in that in that way. Yeah. I think that we've come up with a lot of great points about <laughs> just, you know, yeah, we talked about a lot of things. This is good. So, you know, talking about what collegiate institutions can do to help support minoritized communities and also what we can do repertoire-wise and some of the issues that brass players have to face um, when it comes to the language piece and those sorts of things. And so I, I think we've, we've had a really great conversation about all these issues. And I think we've provided some solutions that honestly aren't that difficult to achieve. Absolutely. I want to thank you for coming on, Zoe. This was a great conversation and I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Cassidy.